I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we hear how antidepressants stimulate the growth of new cells in the human brain. And I'm working in Dr. Camina Pariantis lab, who's a world expert on depression and antidepressant research at King's College. And studies from our research group had shown that different types of antidepressants, they can all activate the glucocorticoid receptor, which is a protein that is involved in the body's response to stress. And we look at the health effects of chronic lack of sleep. A recent paper published in the BMJ found that lack of sleep at the age of three could lead to increased BMI and body fat at the age of seven, even when all other factors that may cause obesity are taken into account. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Our regular guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, is in the studio with me. And our special guest this week is the young German neuroscientist Christoph Anneker who's doing postgraduate research at the Institute of Psychiatry, which is part of King's College London. You've come to public attention through recent research published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry, which shows how antidepressant drugs stimulate the production of neurons in part of the brain. So please tell us first what you found in your study. We've known for several years now, actually, that the brain is nothing fixed and nothing static, but that new brain cells, new neurons, are constantly being born all through adulthood. And this process is called neurogenesis, and it happens in two different regions of the brain. One is called the subventricular zone. The other region is the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is a brain region which is critically involved in memory formation and in mood regulation. And we know that depressed patients, they actually show a reduction in neurogenesis in the hippocampus. Whereas antidepressants, they have the opposite effect. They stimulate neurogenesis and thereby they counteract the effects that we see in depression. Now, the interesting fact is that different classes of antidepressants, they actually have the same effect on neurogenesis. So even though they are chemically very different and acting on different signaling systems within the brain, they all have the same effect on increasing neurogenesis. And do you know how they have this effect? That's what you're working on, isn't it? Right. So we don't know how they have this effect. And we want to find out if there maybe is a common target that gets activated by all different types of antidepressants. And I'm working in Dr. Camina Pariantis lab, who's a world expert on depression and antidepressant research at King's College. And studies from our research group had shown that different types of antidepressants, they can all activate the glucocorticoid receptor, which is a protein that is involved in the body's response to stress. So now we want to find out whether the glucocorticoid receptor is also involved in the effect of antidepressants on neurogenesis. And we want to look specifically in the cell type that gives rise to new neurons in the hippocampus. And these are the hippocampal stem cells. 
So we cultured human embryonic hippocampal stem cells in the laboratory. And even though these cells are embryonic cells, they have the same properties and the same characteristics as the adult hippocampal stem cells in the adult human brain. And we treated these stem cells with antidepressants. And we saw that antidepressants make more of these stem cells develop into mature neurons and that they do this by activating the glucocorticoid receptor. And if we block the glucocorticoid receptor, then we also block this effect of the antidepressant. So do you think it's valid to extrapolate from your work in cell cultures to the live human brain? Well, of course, it's a very different system. But I think the big advantage that we have is that we're actually using human cells. And it's very difficult to measure neurogenesis in humans because it's quite an invasive method. So it's very difficult to look into the living human brain to study neurogenesis. So really, stem cells from humans, that's really the only option that we have. So if you have found the mechanism by which antidepressants stimulate the growth of new brain cells, how can you apply that? I think we could now develop drugs, for example, that specifically target this new protein that we have found, the glucocorticoid receptor, to develop maybe more efficient and more targeted antidepressants. At the moment, around 50% of depressed patients, they fail to improve with currently available antidepressant medication. And this shows us how little we actually know about how these drugs work. You've come from Germany, but before you were studying in America, what made you come to the UK to do this research? I think it was mostly the research interest. I knew that Dr. Parianta's lab was working on the glucocorticoid receptor and that he was working with stem cells as well. So this was, for me, the main point to decide that I wanted to do this research and this research was was happening here. So that's that's why I came. And who's funding the research? This is the National Institute for Health Research, the NIHR. So how different is it? Is it a much bigger team or it's just so focused on your research? Is the whole environment very different from what Yes, I'm interested to know how it differs from the US where you were at Stanford, also from German labs. I think I've been very lucky to always work in labs which were very motivated and very enthusiastic about work. And I think this is this is the most important point, really. And that was the same in Germany and in the US, and it's now the case here in the UK. And I think this is really important. I think here in the UK, I really have all the research equipment that I need to conduct the work that I'm interested in. Do you ever encounter any issues with friends, family, colleagues about the use of human embryo stem cells? No, I think everybody who I talk to about my work is really supportive because they know it may lead to the development of new antidepressant drugs and it's actually in the end meant to benefit health and to help depressed patients. So for that reason it's a really good example of where human embryo stem cell research can take us. Yes. Mm -hmm. So... Where do you take yourself next? Do you get your PhD from King's this autumn? Where then? (laughs) Well, I would like to continue working on um, the effects of neurogenesis on behaviour and um, how antidepressants influence neurogenesis, and I'm considering my options at the moment. Well, I hope you can stay in this country. Now, let's move on to another mystery of our brain, sleep. Over to Duncan Jarvis for our fortnightly contribution from the British Medical Journal. Thanks, Clive. Sleep. It's something that most of us take for granted, though we spend a third of our lives tucked up. In our increasingly busy world, a good night's sleep often takes second place to a bit more work or a bit more play. Particularly in the last 60 to 70 years, 
the American population has lost, on average, in excess of two hours per night, from just over nine hours per night to just under seven hours per night. But if we look at the extremes, for instance, we say how many people would sleep less than five hours per night, and we'll come back to this magic number later, uh, we find that in excess of 20% of the population, one in five, do regularly sleep less than five hours per night. That's Professor Francesco Capuccio from Warwick University, who's studying the link between sleep and health. So, what effect is this lack of sleep having? A recent paper published in the BMJ found that lack of sleep at the age of three could lead to increased BMI and body fat at the age of seven, even when all other factors that may cause obesity are taken into account. I must say I thought that the change in how we feed our children, take away foods, unhealthy foods that are promoted to us very much in the supermarkets, I thought that those would be the strong things that would predict BMI. Uh, and so it was a bit of a surprise that sleep got so high in the ranking. Barry Taylor from the University of Tago in New Zealand, who carried out the research. It's quite interesting when you actually look at the changes in fast food, portion size that have been talked about as the cause of modern epidemic of obesity. You can actually look at sleep data and say that the changes in sleep patterns match the obesity epidemic just as well as, as many of the other patterns. How obesity is linked to sleep is complex and still being understood, but it seems lack of sleep can lead to hormonal and metabolic changes, some of which change the kind of food you crave. But it's not just obesity that's linked to sleep. Earlier on, Professor Capuccio mentioned the important cut-off of five hours. His research has found that there are many conditions linked to sleeping less than that time. A lack of sleep or shorter duration of sleep is likely to be associated prospectively as a potential cause to a number of consequences. Type 2 diabetes, for instance, is far more common in people who sleep less than five hours per night. The development of high blood pressure. And we find also that total mortality is indeed increased in people who regularly sleep less than five hours per night. In other words, it's more likely that you die prematurely. So perhaps it's time to go to your doctor and ask them to prescribe a nice long lie-in. Back to you, Clive. Thanks, Duncan, and thanks to the BMJ. I've always been slightly suspicious of this argument that we're getting less and less sleep, and what he didn't point out was there's also an optimum amount of sleep, and epidemiology shows that if you sleep more than a certain amount, mortality goes up too. Anyway, Chris, as a neuroscientist working in a very different area, what do you think of the argument that not sleeping enough is doing bad things to the brain and that through that to the rest of the body? Well, maybe the areas are not that different in the end, because I think we're living in a very busy world at the moment. And I think getting less sleep may be a result of the the stress that we actually have, because we need to achieve more, we need to work more, and um, we get less and less time to sleep. And in the end, all this stress and um, the work that we are doing, this busyness, um, may lead to depressive symptoms as well. So it would be interesting to see if less sleep can also have an effect on, on depression, maybe. That's interesting, because there is a link, isn't there, between a lot of depressed patients and their sleep patterns. Yeah. And I think that there's a new antidepressant drug coming into clinical trials based on melatonin or some related cycle-setting hormone. Is that right? Yes, there's a new drug which uh, targets directly the melatonin receptors. Diana, do you get enough sleep? 
<laughs> probably not, but and it's not whatever it is, the pattern is not regular. But I think there are also studies that link the type of work you do and the amount of sleep you need. It seems to me that it's logical we do much less physical work as a society now. So we're likely to need much less sleep. And I would have thought that there has been a link between that and our reducing sleep patterns. I'm sure that's right. And also in the old days, our sleep needs were much more seasonal. With artificial lighting, that's evened out that effect. Artificial lighting and noise. I think those uh, there are also studies that show that those who live in cities sleep less, so we have a more disturbed sleep. Well, I think that's probably all we have time for today. So I hope you'll all sleep well for the rest of this week, the rest of your lives. I would go for seven or eight hours. No more and no less. Please join us again next week for FT Science. All that's left for me now is to thank Diana Garnham and Chris Annika for coming into the studio and Duncan Jarvis for the BMJ contribution. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.